So people whose window looked out into a courtyard with greenery versus whose window in the hospital looked to the parking lot or to another wall and found, amazingly enough, that people who were able to look at the greenery were discharged one day on average uh, sooner, uh, complained less, and the nurse's notes reflect that they were not as grouchy and um, required less pain medication. So that was really one of the very first studies. And 15 years ago, there were only literally a handful of research studies looking at the effect on mood, blood pressure, um, something called cortisol levels. Cortisol mean is a chemical that gets goes up whenever we're stressed. Okay, so f- 15 years ago, handful of studies. Since then, over a thousand. So this is not woo woo. This is a, we we can demonstrate this in many 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 ways. So that's what I've been learning over time, and then trying to bring it to my own patients, um, into my own life. And it's, it's, it's an amazing free um, modality of, of, of helping ourselves. It really is considered by many a part of uh, integrative medicine, a, part, a free thing. And of course, because there's no money behind it, you're not going to see ads on television like we do for all the drugs. We're not going to see ads that say, hey, go out in nature and you're going to lower your cortisol level, you're going to lower your blood pressure. You're never going to see that because there's no money behind it. So that's why I want to be a messenger to as many people as possible. I'm Dr. Regina Kett. I'm a board certified clinical psychologist and I specialize with older adults and families. I created the Psychology of Aging podcast to answer some of the most common questions I get about aging. Questions about mental health and wellness, changes in the brain, like with dementia, relationships and sex, caregiving, and even end of life. Like I say in my therapy groups, no topic is off topic. We just have to have a healthy way of talking about it. So if you're an older adult or caring for one, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Paula Hartman-Stein, thank you so much for joining me on the Psychology of Aging podcast. I'm curious if you'll start by sharing a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Regina, for having me as a guest today. I really appreciate it and appreciate all the work you're doing to to, uh, explain to the public more about the psychology of aging, a topic that obviously is important to me too. Uh, I'm from Western Pennsylvania originally and started out my career as a medical psychologist, worked in hospitals, and back in the, this is going way back now into the 80s, um, there was an opportunity in the hospital where I was working in, in Akron, Ohio. They were starting the very first geriatric assessment center in the city. There, there were two uh, large hospitals there, teaching hospitals, and Dr. Schlemmer, a family practice doctor, started the first center and asked me to be their psychologist. And I thought, well, this would be a great opportunity having worked with people with a lot of chronic medical conditions. Well, I started working there and within a few months, I realized how little I knew about the field. So what I did, those days there were very few, uh, very few uh, opportunities for postdoctoral fellowships. There were none in the region. And I was, I was married and didn't really couldn't travel to another city. So fortunately, Case Western Reserve in Cleveland had uh, an opportunity. They called it a geriatric clinician development program. It was primarily for um, primary care doctors, but they allowed me and I was the first psychologist. And this, you're not going to believe how long this took, but it was one day a week. I traveled to Cleveland from Akron, which is about an hour drive, um, one day a week for seven years. And yeah, seven years to get the certificate. And so I, I shadowed people in the geriatric field. And then at the end, I had to develop the capstone experience was to develop a course on the pragmatics of a practice, a psychology practice of working with older adults. And I did that for Cleveland State University. So, um, so I'm one of the, you know, in, in this area from the 80s, one of the 
uh, pioneers, I guess, at least in Northeast Ohio, to to work in the field that you and I both share of geropsychology. So um, I worked in hospitals. I've worked in every setting with older adults, except for one, and that would be prisons. I never worked in a prison. Wouldn't want to. Um, and then eventually I left the hospital, started my own practice called the Center for Healthy Aging in Akron and then in Kent, Ohio, where Kent State is. And I, I did um, geropsychological um, cognitive evaluations for people who were worried about their memory. I worked with a lot of caregivers. And then I started a lot of group work. I really like group work. And so I developed a thing called the Memo Club, which stood for Memory and Mood, and um, did a whole series there. And, and then I've, I've worked in academia part-time as well, taught some courses, online courses, courses at Kent State, courses at Arizona State University. Um, so did that for many years. And then finally, in 2015, I decided to close the uh, private practice and because we were, my husband and I were eventually going to move to where we live now, which is in North Carolina. And uh, so I started doing more training. So I did training primarily of, of professionals in the field, nurses, social workers, psychologists, et cetera. So I've been doing that since 2015. And, and I write, um, I'm a regular writer and contributor to a newspaper called The National Psychologist. I've written over over 150 articles, all on the aging topic. Um, so I do that, and then I had an opportunity to put together um, a book called um, "Enhancing Cognitive Fitness in Adults." So this was quite a project—37 chapters, 66 contributors. So after I put this book together, that's when I thought, well, what can I, as one person, one person, what can I do to contribute to the field? And that's when I started a lot of these group programs, um, putting together people who they, the people that were there were either had depression or had um, just very mild cognitive uh, impairment. And they they wanted, they, they didn't need to be in, um, they all lived at home. They didn't need to be in assisted living at that time. They didn't need adult daycare, but they were, they were not confident to take classes, let's say at the university that were open to people um, free of charge. They didn't want to do that. So I, and so I ran this program for over 10 years and um, really learned a lot uh, from it. So anyway, that's, that's my story. And um I'm I'm a coal miner's daughter. I come from a very practical uh, working class family and had great opportunities for advanced education. But um, I think because of my coal mining dad, that's why I'm as practical as 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 I I am throughout my my life. And now, ten years ago to now, you've started some another concept or another yes. sort of helpful program or way of understanding brain health called vitamin N. Can, can you share a little bit about vitamin N? What is it? And yes. tell us about I'd, it. I'd love to talk about it because it's, it's something that um, not enough people know about. Vitamin N is a term for nature and it was coined by an educator and journalist named Richard Louv, L-O-U-V, as in Victor, Richard Louv. And I'm a big fan of his work. I follow his work. He has a, a number of books. And he wrote a book, actually, in 2011, it came out, called The Nature Principle. And I heard about this, but I also want to tell you how I also, also at the same time, it was around the same year, um, there was a conference that Andrew Weil um, put together in, in Arizona, and I was fortunate enough to attend. And I heard um, a lecture that changed my life. I heard, um, I heard a program by a research scientist named Esther Sternberg. And Dr. Sternberg worked for the NIH. She, was, um, she is a rheumatologist uh, studying you know, various you know, problems with uh, um, arthritis and those kinds of conditions. 
And she gave this remarkable talk about how the effect of place affects our mood and our health and well-being. And there's a PBS special that she produced or was part of the production um, about this topic. Okay, the science—it's called the science of healing. And so I—I I looked at this. Um, I was reading Richard Louv, and my son, who was in college at the time, um, was interested in something called green exercise. And green exercise is doing um, exercise outside. And so all these things came together. And so as my son worked on his capstone project for his senior project, of course, mother had to read all the articles too. So I, I did. And it was an amazing op um, opening for me. I think, Regina, that those of us in, in the mental health area, we tend to be in our own silos where we you know, have certain journals that we read articles and learn things from. And we don't always you know, open ourselves to other fields. And I think this, I know, I don't think, I know this is true in terms of, um, in, in terms of vitamin N or the health benefits of, of nature. Richard Louv also coined a phrase which um, I love to use. It's called nature deficit disorder. We've all heard of attention deficit disorder, yes? Well, NDD, nature deficit disorder, is not a, a, a you know, medical um, category in the DSM in our, in our book that categorizes mental conditions, but it, it describes the disconnect and what happens to people when they um, are not in nature enough. And in fact, believe it or not, in January of 2021, just this year when we're doing our podcast right now, um, the, the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, came out with an incredible statistic that um, the average American spends 93% of their time in a building okay, or in a car. So it's about 87% in a building and um, uh, six, 7% in a car. So 93% were not outside. And there's a problem with that. And of course, now technology is marvelous. And what we, would we do without it during this pandemic time? But too much of this is not good for our brains. Now, one might say, oh, that's just because, you know, people think, it, you know, it's pretty to look outside. And, you know, I have, I'm looking to my side here, a window with rain coming down today. But it's a lot more. It's a lot more than just um, beauty. And there's um, the, well, first of all, the ancients knew about this intuitively thousands of years ago. The, um, the Chinese Taoists made temples to nature. The ancient Greeks also did part of their health and healing was, was in nature. Um, but the research, there is research, there's always research, but it's just that, um, we don't always know about this published research. Now, you may have heard of this study. It's a, it, it's a seminal or very important original study in the 80s, 84, it came out by Richard Ulrich um, in Texas, where he looked at um, people who were hospitalized for gallbladder surgery and looked at people who just by happenstance, this was not um, done purposely, this was a, an observational study. And he looked at um, how many days were they, those days probably today, you're not even in the hospital, but in, in the 80s, you were hospitalized for gallbladder removal. Um, so people whose window looked out into a courtyard with greenery versus whose window in the hospital looked to the parking lot or to another wall and found, amazingly enough, that people who were able to look at the greenery were discharged one day on average uh, sooner, uh, complained less, and the nurse's notes reflect that they were not as grouchy, and um, required less pain medication. So that was really one of the very first studies. And back, um, let's see, 15 years ago, 
there were only literally a handful of research studies looking at the effect on mood, blood pressure, um, something called cortisol levels. Cortisol mean is a chemical that gets goes up whenever we're stressed. Okay, so f- fifteen years ago, handful of studies. Since then, over a thousand. So this is not woo woo. This is a we we can demonstrate this in many 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 ways. So that's what I've been learning over time, and then trying to bring it to my own patients, um, into my own life. And it's, it's, it's an amazing free um, modality of, of, of helping ourselves. It really is considered by many a part of uh, integrative medicine, a, part, a free thing. And of course, because there's no money behind it, you're not going to see ads on television like we do for all the drugs. We're not going to see ads that say, hey, go out in nature and you're going to lower your cortisol level, you're going to lower your blood pressure, you're never going to see that because there's no money behind it. So that's why I want to be a messenger to as many people as possible, because I've been able to learn this um, through happenstance. Well, and to learn it through science and lived experience. So you're, you're sharing with us being in nature or even observing nature in its natural habitat. So if it's a courtyard, there's benefit. If you can look out the window and see trees or life. And uh, that's one way of engaging with nature. So if you're in a hospital room, are you able to see nature? And the other is being in nature. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? So what are the benefits of being in nature? How does that help our brain health? One of the uh, one of the researchers is a uh, um, named Strayer from um, the West, Utah, I believe. And one of one of his uh, research uh, findings is that if you are walking, um, you know, we're not talking about you know real uh, invigorating running, just walking um, in nature. He found an improvement in working memory. In, and also in creativity. But caveat, um, you can't have your cell phone and be you know, doing that or have your earbuds in. Ixnay on the earbuds. Okay. So, so you can't <laughs> you be have, listening to this podcast in nature. That's right. Well, you're not going to get the same benefits. You okay. get other benefits maybe, but not, not the same. So you need to be mindful. You need when, when you walk outside. Um, and really the, the, the core research, I should say, the main research really has come from Japan. Um, Professor Miyazaki is the main researcher who has studied what is called in Japan, uh, the term is forest bathing in English or Shinrin-yoku, and I'm probably mispronouncing it, but uh, that means wandering around for about 30 minutes um, you know, or longer and taking in the vision, the sight, the sounds, the smells, the feeling on the the, the body of the breeze, etc. So, um, and he has been Miyazaki's work is pretty amazing. Uh, looking at reduction in, again in in blood pressure, um, also skin conductance. In other words, showing that you're less stressed. Um, and and this, I like the because my work has been in the cognitive area for uh, many, many years, I'm interested in how it improves our, um, our thinking and our attention, just as mindfulness meditation uh, does. So the, the really, to me, the really powerful thing also is that, you know, many, of, many people, of course, live in um, cold climates during, of course, during the winter, um, and, uh, you know, and there's rain and bad weather. So, and, and maybe people have trouble walking. So what can we do about that? Last week, I was um, on, a, on a call with um, a number of people who work in long-term care. And these, these are across the United States and Canada. And I asked the question to these administrators, what, if anything, they were doing during the pandemic for nature exposure for their residents. 
And one woman who was from Waterloo, um, that's in uh, Canada, said their her program was very aware of this of this research literature. So they make a point of bringing in plants to people's rooms. They make a a point. This is this was interesting too. They have. Um, the UK and I guess Canada refer to, we call them parakeets, they call them budgies, little birds. And lo and behold, I found an article very, very recently about the effect of looking at budgie birds or parakeets and reading to them, okay? And they're in cages. And th this was a what's called a random, in our field, a randomized control trial where they had some people um, looking at artificial birds, you know, that, that actually move and have sounds who look like birds. And then the real birds and the third group were just talking to cages that were empty. Well, we wouldn't expect they would do much. But, um, but the interesting findings, I think it's pretty fascinating. And this um, administrator didn't know the study, but... I don't know, intuitively, their group came up with this idea of these budgies. Um, and and what, they, what the researchers found in the randomized control trials, what they found is that people reading aloud to the real birds um, had a drop also, same kind of thing, drop in blood pressure, reported feeling better, less anxious. Um, so who knew? So um, there's, there's a whole um, group of, of articles about what is called human-animal interaction and some really good studies about it. And you know, all of us know about uh, service dogs and have seen, seen that. And dogs are used um, actually in courtrooms today to help children who have to testify to calm down. So dogs, we know about dogs. And then, then there's... Um, um, equine assisted uh, treatments, the, the horses. So that's, that's a whole other area. But um, having cats and dogs around also, uh, there's a bonding chemical that gets released, oxytocin, oxytocin. Um, so animals and, but the really amazing thing, at least to me, it, um, some very, very new research articles about having eye contact with wild animals, not ones that are going to, you know, kill you, but um, but birds out in the wild. Um, also, the one study that I read was done in the UK, and it was with lemurs, these little critters, uh, little creatures uh, who are not going to harm you, and they have these long tails, you know. So they had people go out into enclosures where with the lemurs. I mean, they're right there with you because they're not going to hurt you. And just watching them and maybe making eye contact with them um, with, I think it was a 20 minute walk, it was a short walk, also had the same kinds of effects. So um, the, you know, however you want to call it, the universe, um, God, however one, you know, looks at these things. We have this right there. And I also just let me just say this. I also discovered some of the power of being in nature in terms of problem solving. How did I find that? Well, when I again 10 years ago when I started into this area of intervention with my clientele, I started to do um, writing workshops in parks. And, you know, during, during reasonably good weather, although we, we could do it in the rain too, because I would, I would rent out, um, uh, you know, a, a place where there was a, a roof over your head. A pavilion um, or something. Yeah, pavilion, that's the word. And, and so um, I, I've done this now for almost 10 years, and I've done it in different parts of the country. I've done it with professional groups, and I've done it with, with the community groups and intergenerational. And what I've, this is not a randomized control trial. This is not something like that. This is by my own observation and anecdote. I have found that, that people, well, I would give a certain 
trigger, something, a prompt. And the prompt would be, and, and I have to give, again, credit where credit is due. And I attended a workshop by a, uh, a well-known Catholic priest, um, Father Richard Rohr. From, he's from Albuquerque. And he did a workshop that I attended called Spirituality and Nature. And that's when I was a big skeptic about this. And I thought, what is he talking about? But he had us go out on the grounds, beautiful grounds, pick an object that attracted us, a tree, a branch, a squirrel, the, the pond, um, a flower, whatever, and be mindful of it, study it carefully. I picked a pine tree, this big pine tree, and um, study it in in great deal of, of, of care. I mean, most of us, you know, we look at things, but don't really process it. But so this was to look carefully and ask the object a question. See if it could teach us anything. So one could say that that was the, the trigger that the information is in our own brain and that the nature object was just the way to get it out. And it may be that. We don't know uh, exactly. But I it was an amazing experience for me personally. So I thought, well, I'll try this with my, my clientele. And it was uh, incredibly amazing. And if I may just tell you this anecdote, um, normally the, the size of these writing groups, they tend to be small. They tend to be anywhere from eight to 12 people. Okay? And that's, that's an easy group to manage. Well, I had an opportunity to go to um, Australia a number of years ago and to do a workshop about um, healthy aging and to do something experiential. Well, I was just into this, this writing in nature um, idea. So I had 80 people and these were aged from 25 to 75. Uh, wow, what am I gonna do with this crowd? So um, was able to figure it out and had Everybody go out into this. It was a beautiful setting. It's a subtropical setting there in, in Brisbane, Australia. Um, do the same thing. Come back together. And then I divided them into groups. Who picked something that was uh, related to animals? Who picked something related to uh, trees and grass and flowers? And who picked something related to clouds or wind or something like that? And I had everybody, you know, with 80 people, you can't read your whole piece, but I had everybody read two, um, two or three sentences. And it was just a tapestry. It was because there were different accents. Anyway, it was a beautiful thing. I wish I had it recorded. But here's my point. At the very end, a woman came up to me who was a retired um, psychologist in, in Australia in her um, late 60s, early 70s. And, you know, I never met her before. And she said to me, I'll never forget it. She said, you know, I don't know what you did in there, but I've been in therapy myself for about two years. And this writing experience in nature, I have, I have the answer now. I know what to do to solve my problem. And she, you know, we weren't going into what our problem, I, no, I have no idea what her problem was. But, but she said it was just a way to, you know, I look at it as clearing one's mind, being mindful, stopping the clutter in the monkey mind, as we call it, and then being able to focus. And lo and behold, you're relaxed. Nature relaxes you. We know this for fact. And then things come out of your own consciousness. So it's, it's, it's great medicine. Nature is medicine. And we can, you know, have the plant in our room. If, if, if you can't go outside, you can sit on your porch and do chair yoga. You know, as long as you look around and don't have your earbuds in and, you know, working on your devices. <laughs> so, now, if, if nature is medicine, yes. how would you dose it? How often should people be going outside? What would your prescription be? <laughs> well, that's a good question. No one's asked me that one before. I don't think there is a specific amount, um, but this is more of off the top of my head. I would say if you can do it at least three times a week. Um, but 
if you have, if you're fortunate enough, as 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 I am in this in this home that we have in, in the Western uh, North Carolina mountains. I mean, I don't go outside every day. Okay, I'm I'm one of these average Americans who spends too much time in a, in a box in a house, but I do look outside every day, every day, and and the first thing I do in in my bathroom, I have a great I have a great window and I put the blind down um, and I just take a look, look at the weather, look at the trees. I have big pine trees and I actually can see a lake too. So um, that starts my day and makes me feel happy. Um, can I just tell you one other little anecdote? Um, once upon a time, it was actually around the same time. It was about 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago. Um, my husband and I were living in Ohio and we were vacationing. We actually, I went to a pre-retirement um, conference in Asheville, North Carolina. I had never been to Asheville, didn't know anything about it. And during our free time, we went to these grounds um, at the Biltmore Estate. These grounds were, were uh, put together, were designed by Frederick Law Olmsted, the great... Um, landscaper who did Central Park. These are exquisite grounds. And this was the springtime and the azaleas were all in bloom. And, and I said to my husband, I feel so happy here. And he looked at me and we tend not to be impulsive people, but he said, maybe we can move here. I said, move here. I never thought we'd move out of Ohio. And that was the start. Now, here is a, I must tell you this interesting fact, which I did not know at the time. And that is that there have been some um, neurobiological studies by a group um, uh, in California where they, they put people in the scanner, okay? These are PET scans, I believe, PET scans. And they were able to show... Um, them different uh, visual images while they're in the, the scanner, okay? And the people, when they saw images, beautiful images of nature versus, you know, cars or buildings, um, different parts of their brain lit up. And so here's the idea that we have, we have some nerves from our visual cortex to the hippocampus, which is the area, as you know, has to do with memory. And along this, this uh, neural pathway are little, little, little sites, little areas that pop out, shall we say, little bits of, of opiates, the feel-good chemicals that people get, okay? And so... I really do believe this, that when I was in that beautiful azalea garden, that I was like on a little mini natural high from my brain, because I, I cannot tell you how happy I felt. And so what that tells us research-wise and then feeling-wise is that you don't, okay, you don't even have to be totally aware of of your surroundings because things are happening un, sort of unconsciously in terms of your brain. So there's all these things going on. We can be mindful, you know, really paying attention. But even if we're not, and I don't want to say bring out your device and you can still get the good benefits, that's not quite right. But you, even if you are listening to a podcast when you're walking because you just want the exercise, all right, you're still going to get some benefits that you didn't even know about. I just found this research just to be absolutely fascinating. And now is there any research that talks about uh, nature and prevention of or delay of dementia? I have not seen anything that talks truly about the delay of dementia. What, what, the, um, what I've seen and read over and over and over is that there is a an enhancement of creativity. There is also an enhancement of working memory. How it can prevent or delay, that is not known. And I can say that with 
pretty good certainty because um, in the last four months, uh, I had a, a, an opportunity and, and took it to, I was asked to write a chapter for an academic book on what's preventable in dementia. So I spent four to five months um, with with um, a couple colleagues, but I was the, the I did the heavy lifting. I did I was the lead lead author in this, and and so what I have done is found all of the published research. I think at least as of at least as of December of of twenty twenty, and twenty twenty as we all know is a is a the year for the ages, right? In many many ways. One good thing about it in terms of the in terms of the brain health area is this two separate uh, groups of researchers, international researchers, very separate groups, um, published in 2020, I think I like a month or two apart, interesting. Um, the, their findings for what factors can you can we modify in our lives? that help to prevent or delay dementia. Wow, so I was lucky to, to find all these articles. And, and so I, um, there are 12 to 19 modifiable risk factors. And so I, I put them together in a way that, that people can understand without reading all these, <laughs> all these articles that I took me five months to read. Anyway, um, so, Certainly, um, moving more is one of them. Um, but the it's interesting they don't specify the dose of it. That is truly not known. Um, but the fact that we do have to move more, um, both aerobic as well as strength training, that's one. Nutrition's a biggie, big, big, big. And there are all sorts of quote dietary patterns. We've heard of the Mediterranean diet. There's the Mind diet. There's the Dash diet. There's the Nordic diet, um, there's the Esselstyn diet, and there's the Ornish diet. Okay, the the main um, I would say of these different diets that have been looked at, we can say the research does show um, an interplay of them that the more whole foods you eat, in other words, try to stay away. This has really changed my life too because I certainly like sweets. And I'm not saying I'm going to give them all up. I doubt I can do that or will do that. But the less less sugar, less added sugar, um, the more that we eat, um, take that back, the less processed foods we eat. So soda pop, mixing in the soda pop, um, you know, things like hot dogs, actually red meat, all of these diets, um, they have very, very little, if any, some have absolutely no meat, you know, more of a vegan diet. Um, at least two of them are the very low fat diets, but, um, but the more whole foods, the more greens, the more berries, the more, so I snack regularly now on, on, on nuts and seeds. And, um, that's a much better snack than what I used to have. So there's nutrition, there's, um, the alcohol, uh, this is interesting. In these meta-analyses, this is pretty liberal finding. They found that um, they didn't separate men from women on the genders, but they found that um, as long as you don't have more than, you're, you're having a big risk if you have more than 21 units a week, that would be three drinks a day. All right, seven times three. But, but, but. The, these diets say, you, you know, some alcohol in moderation is okay, but uh, 21 is the outset, is the, is the top amount, okay. But if a person already is experiencing memory impairment, alcohol is not good. And so uh, I have recommended, um, if, if people like the taste of wine, there, there are pretty tasty um, alcohol-free wines. So anyway, so there's that. They're keeping your blood pressure, your your systolic at 130 um, or lower. Um, you know, that's the top number. Um, and then of course depression and mood and keeping yourself um, more modulated emotionally. And nature falls into that as yeah. a strategy. Okay, so that's where 
Um, the articles don't specifically say which things to use, which strategies to reduce your, your stress level, but certainly um, that is also a risk factor that we can modify. So those are some of the big ones right there. Yeah, the mood, the mindfulness helps with that. Yes, exactly. Uh, Exactly. activity level helps with that. It kind of yes. stimulates serotonin. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. One other thing, if I can mention that, that again, if people are caregivers of, of frail adults, um, okay. And, and Regina, you probably as a geropsychologist have heard of the um, uh, pleasant events schedule. Those are, you know, uh, there's about 66 different uh, pursuits or activities one can do. Well, I looked at that schedule and one of them, number one on the list actually, is looking at clouds. Now, this is something that most of us probably did as children, but um, I have, so I've been experimenting with this with some groups that I'm still leading. And so, um, and these are people that I'm working with now remotely. They are, they are they are fully intact. These are not people with dementia or even mild cognitive impairment. And so I brought this up just to see what would be the response. Does that sound too childish or what? Well, lo and behold, um, the people loved it. And just to give you an example, um, one woman is a retired nurse from the Cleveland Clinic and her husband is a retired um, prosecuting attorney. They uh, are in their mid 80s. And they're not visiting their grandchildren during the pandemic yet. So, so she said to me, I took your advice, Dr. Paula. And so um, my husband and I go out and we actually look at the clouds and we, we love it. It makes us, it gives us a lift. It's, 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 it's happy. It makes us feel happy. So something as small as that and people who are, oh, you know, in a nursing facility, hopefully they have a window. Um, looking outside, looking at the clouds, that little thing. So again, nature gives us so many gifts, so many gifts. We just have to take advantage of them. We have to use them. They're there for us to use, I believe. Um, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking for 10 years, I worked in a windowless office oh boy. in a VA. I mean, really, my office was tiny. It was I was almost like knee to knee with my patients. And I would sometimes have families of five in this tiny room. Oh, I worked, nice. you know, with older families and most of my families are African-American families. And, um, and if, if a family wanted to bring multiple family members, welcome, you know, I would <laughs> welcome them. And, and I was reflecting on how important behind our hospital was a walking trail and, huh. and I would meet some years I didn't do this. I was just too busy. I would work through lunch and just seeing patients all the time. But there was a period where a, a palliative care psychologist who also had a windowless office working on in palliative care and I would meet every day and we would take a walk outside in nature and how much we needed it. And we would get come back to our desks and finish out the day. And, and I'm thinking during COVID also how complicated it was. Um, you know, I, I did a group, uh, provided a group for health providers who were working in the ICU in COVID, uh, ICU clinics oh, wow. and ICUs typically don't have windows. Right. Talk about stress. Yeah. And just, and I, and I'm thinking I kind of, uh, approach, uh, caring for older adults from a sort of systems framework where I think of the family system. I think of the health system. I think of, you know, the health of our healthcare providers is essential also for helping with the health of our older adults and families. So there's the older adult, there's the family, there's the health system, and we're all working together. And I just think how equally important our health providers need to be caring for their um, mental health and wellness and physical health by having breaks outside how older adults, and I agree, I would often give feedback to long-term care communities. Families would be coming in to my office, my windowless office saying, you know, our loved one is not getting out of bed. The, the, um, staff are, um, 
they need a Hoyer lift. The Hoyer lift is broken. Like, you know, how can we get the older adult out of the bed or the person living with a spinal cord injury out of the bed and outside for fresh air and sitting in the courtyard. And sometimes I would actually write orders very good. Back to the long-term care community. The, the person has to get out of bed. The person has to get to a window or to outside for fresh air. And for many reasons, one is for sense stimulation too. Yes. And if our senses don't have the stimulation with natural light or with smell or sound, our, it's distressing to our brain and we decline. Yes. And it affects our sleep cycle even. Yes, you're, you're right on. If I can share this story too, this is very recent. Um, I have, well, I had a friend. She has since unfortunately died rather suddenly in November. Um, she was in her early 80s, a uh, healthy woman, well, we thought very healthy woman, moved from Northeast Ohio to Albuquerque to, to a uh, continuing care retirement community in the independent section. And so she she was there just for a few months before the pandemic hit. And she participated in October of 2020 in a virtual writing workshop that I did. She was a, she was a good writer, loved it. And she participated in this and touched all of us on this call by her her piece, her narrative that she wrote. What she said essentially was that she was so desperately lonely because they were very restrictive about no meals, no congregate meals, no visiting. The only time she could go out, she still would drive, but she could go out to see her doctor and and she had one family member in the area. They allowed her to go out for that. Well, she said, the only way I survived this emotionally was fortunately I had a small balcony. And she said, every, every evening I went on the balcony and took in the Albuquerque sunset and the Albuquerque night sky. And she said, uh, I could see the constancy in nature and it, it showed me something bigger than myself. And that's what really helped her. That was so touching to hear that. So again, she was able to utilize what's free. And again, something that we don't... Um, we don't teach our, you know, we, we feel it, I think, instinctively. Most of us didn't know that there's research backing. I hope my words today give some inspiration to the older adults listening um, for themselves, as well as their grandchildren or children, as well as anybody that they're taking care of. Please go outside, get some plants. Oh, hey, there's a nut. I've got to tell you this. There's a, it was amazing. Um, there was a study, not so, it was published um, very recently. And it was a group of um, people who were hospitalized for pretty awful surgery is to have their hemorrhoids removed. Okay. Well, it, this was a randomized control trial. And so one group, um, I think it was 45, it was 90 people. So 45 were in a, a hospital room where there were no plants, no ornamental plants. Another group had ornamental plants. Lo and behold, the ones with the plants did better, got out of the same as Ulrich's study back in the 80s. Um, one other tidbit, which is just kind of blows my mind. I didn't know this at all. Um, I like art. And I, I do have some abstract um, art in my house. Um, I also have nature. And there's one behind me of uh, Ian Adams, a famous uh, photographer and, and um, uh, a nature scene. Well, there's, there's some newer research that shows that even having artwork depicting nature helps your mood better than if you're looking at, even if it's beautiful to you, um, abstract art. And part of that may be the fractals. Um, fractals are, are repeating patterns in nature. Our brain likes to see patterns. And so fractals, like think of a broccoli head. If you break off a little um, you know, flowerlet or whatever they call it of the broccoli, 
it is of the same shape and pattern as the whole. Okay. So same with veins in a, in a leaf, they have a similar pattern to the whole tree. So there are these fractals in nature. And that's what Esther Sternberg talked about in that lecture I went to um, about 11 years ago about how fractals light up those, those pathways in our brain, those opiate rich pathways and make us feel better. So there's something we're hardwired for this. We're hardwired, but we must not neglect it. We must nurture it, nurture and have our doses of vitamin N. That's as important as, as vitamin D. Everybody knows about that, but how about vitamin N and get rid of this nature deficit disorder? I know that you are also offering a free webinar coming up yes. about other ways to prevent uh, dementia. You mentioned 12 to 19 strategies right. for preventing dementia that are based on science. Yes. If people would like to learn more about you and would like to learn more about that, where can they find you? Well, thank you for the question. Um, well, I have a website, um, centerforhealthyaging.com. And we're starting um, a program uh, with my colleague, who's a culinary nutritionist, Bridget McVaugh from Texas and uh, in the cardiac area. So, so we are doing um, a free session and you can go to my website and find, up, find out about it and sign up. And then after that, we're doing five part, um, 90 minute each. And Bridget is doing some very, we're both very practical uh, people from Western Pennsylvania. And so she's doing some work in her actual kitchen, showing what you can do to try to get more of the, the good foods um, that are in your refrigerator and in your cupboard and, and make it so that, that it, it will help your brain. I'll be talking about the other modifiable risk factors, um, about reducing stress and depression, moving more, um, sleeping better and um, all the rest that that I have recently learned about through culling the entire literature on this. So thank you for asking. And that's centerforahealthyaging.com. We'll link yes. to that in our show notes. Thank you. Paula Hartmanstein, thank you so much for your time and all of the information and education today. I hope we all get outside without our yes. earbuds. Right. At least look outside, if nothing else. If you are concerned about a loved one with memory loss, download my free memory loss guide. In it, I talk about the signs to be mindful of. I talk about the benefits of early diagnosis of dementia and what to do if you're worried that your loved one is showing some of the signs and symptoms of dementia. So head on over to the show notes and download that free memory loss guide now. That's all for today. Now it's your turn. All you have to do is subscribe, leave a review, and share this episode with others so that they can be part of the conversation too. One last thing, a special thanks to Jasmine Joyner, our Psychology of Aging podcast intern, for all you do. Lots of love to you and your families. Bye for now.